Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, the futile flight of John Arthur Ben, by Edward Halibut, aka Richard Wilson. This is first published in Infinity Science Fiction, February 1956. And I found this in the same issue as uh, another Richard Wilson that we did called Course of Empire. In fact, uh, The Feudal Flight of, Ar of John Arthur Ben is page 58, and Course of Empire is page 60. So that tells you how long the story is. <laughs> um, this is, uh, I think, because I'm just really starting to enjoy uh, Richard Wilson that I thought, oh, I'll read this other one. I think I sent it to you. Um, I went into this issue not for uh, for Richard Wilson because he's not really um, hugely big on my radar, but that's growing because um, uh, we, we even got some positive feedback on the last show that we did uh, with Richard Wilson. I think He's got some stuff. He's got a sense of humor. But this is an incredibly short story, and I'm hoping you'll read it to us, Eric. It would be my pleasure, Jesse. The Futile Flight of John Arthur Ben By putting himself into reverse, the doom-intended man left the 20th century far ahead. 1956 was a good year to get out of. John Arthur Ben watched the Roaring Twenties go by in the gay 90s backwards and wondered how it would be to pilot a riverboat on the Mississippi or go to fight under John Paul Jones. Before he was really aware of it, he was, for a speeding second, a contemporary of another John, Smith, and thought about life of the Red Man before the colonists began changing things around. By that time, the scenery had begun to get monotonous, just shrinking trees, and John Arthur Ben swung over into lateral. Ah, England. There went another namesake, Ben Johnson, and in a very little while, he considered slowing down to meet still another, but King Arthur flashed past and into a womb in West Wales. Just as John was convulsed by a sneeze, it was quite drafty, and he should have dressed more warmly, and as he stuffed his handkerchief back in his pocket, he caught just a tantalizing glimpse of an interesting druid ceremony. John Arthur Ben blacked out somewhere in the limbo of the pre-Christian era, as he'd been warned he might, and when he came to, he found himself lying in a rather uncomfortable heap with his head in a mushroom patch. The mushrooms and the trees around him weren't shrinking anymore, so John knew he'd stopped or at least was going very slowly. After a while, he decided he wasn't going at all and got to his feet. It seemed very pleasant here in the woods, so he found a fallen tree to sit on and took a wrapped sandwich a small vacuum bottle of coffee out of his pocket. When he'd finished his meal, he walked to a stream nearby, rinsed the bottle, tossed the wax paper onto the water to be carried away, and pocketed the vacuum bottle. Now, he thought, what? This was scarcely dinosaur country. At this point, a wild boar chased him up a tree. To be killed by a boar would be ignominious after all this, although the animal was well enough tusked to have done the job, and so John Arthur Ben climbed to a high branch where the boar's persistence forced him to spend the night. He slept, somehow, and with the closing of his conscious mind, the one that wanted to meet a dinosaur in fatal combat, 
the conventional subconscious, which also sought suicide, but in a more familiar way, shifted him out of reverse. When he awoke, he was back in 1956 in Philadelphia, irrevocably, John Arthur Ben knew. He went home and hanged himself in a closet. It's very small, this story. Very short. Uh, huh? Now, I have a question for you. How deep is it? <laughs> We've read it. Uh. It's short. Is it incredibly deep? I I note things in it. I note a lot of little things here and there. And uh, I, I think the name of the character is important uh, for his journey. I think the places he goes and his futile flight is important. Putting it all together, I'm not 100% sure what to make of it. Uh, what? How can you help me here? <laughs> it, it seems... The last line, I think, is supposed to echo backward. And Mm -hmm. we're supposed to ask ourselves, what the heck has been going on? We know nothing about suicide until we get to the last third of the last column of the story. It's a short story, but it's this is an even short. It's like a punchline to a joke. Mm -hmm. But this isn't exactly a joke. And jokes and tragedies are side by side. They are structurally equivalent. They just have different style. So let's pay attention to the style. Having read it, knowing where it goes, by putting himself into reverse, the doom-intended man left the 20th century behind. Having read this, now we thought, wait a minute, doom-intended. He was after suicide all along. Yep. Is there, in fact, a time machine? This is a science fiction magazine. Mm -hmm. But maybe there is no time machine. He put himself into reverse. Uh, Why do I think that this is entirely a matter of his own thinking? Because a distinction is made in the course of the story between his conscious mind, which wants one thing, but the subconscious, which wants something else. Mm -hmm. And when he falls asleep, the subconscious takes over. The dream world seems real when you're asleep. When you're awake, you want that dream world, but you can't retrieve it. But John Arthur Ben can. Now, how do we know that it is, in fact, his dream world, and not a machine at all. And not a machine at all. Notice that as he goes back, every single thing that he notes is directly connected with him. Mm -hmm. It's his name. It's, It's the John. It's the Arthur. It's the Ben. It's Ben Johnson, right? He passes. Um, John Smith, Mm -hmm. King Arthur. There is no real King Arthur, right? Right. John Arthur Ben is constructing a time voyage backward because he is trying to meet his own doom with a dinosaur. He hopes he could die with a dinosaur. We don't know why he wants to die yet, but that's what he wants. That, that's the doom intended man. He certainly wasn't thinking of killing the dinosaur. I mean, he's armed with a wrapped sandwich and a thermos bottle, <laughs> a thermos of coffee. <clears throat> so this sounds a lot like, you know, um, 
Richard Corey, you know, John uh, Edward Arlington Robinson, um, you know, who was imperially slim. Everybody envied him, and then he goes home and puts a bullet through his head. What is wrong with John Arthur Ben? He keeps thinking of famous things, mm-hmm. but and now I'm going to go way way out on a limb. He's in the closet. Mm-hmm. He why does he want to go back in time? Because he is trying to get away from the world around him. 1956, the second sentence was a good year to get out of. Now, this was published in 1956. This was a period, I know, I was there then, um, that was known as conformism. Mm -hmm. During the Eisenhower years, everybody had to be like everybody else. These were the days when gay people had all kinds of terrible epithets used of them. And in fact, they were so common that lots of other things that had nothing to do with gay people were characterized with those same epithets. I am not saying that John Arthur Ben was gay. I certainly don't know if uh, Arthur Halibut, Edward Halibut was gay. Um, But what I am saying is this is a story that gives us a portrait of someone who claims that there is a world around him, but he wants to get away from it. He was warned that if he fell asleep, something else would happen. I'm guessing that he has a shrink mm-hmm. that that he doesn't fit he doesn't conform in 1956 and if all he wanted to do was commit suicide he didn't need to concoct all of these things he didn't need to see his namesake forebears he could have just killed himself but he doesn't just kill himself he gets into the closet and then finally kills himself He's never willing to come out of the closet, even dead. That's why he wanted to get away from 1956, so that no one would ever know how uncomfortable he is in this non-conforming world. That's, I think, a way of reading this in a kind of serious view. But on the other hand, there is humor in here, Mm -hmm. uh, just as there is in Richard Corey. John Arthur Ben blacked out somewhere in the limbo of the pre-Christian era. Limbo, of course, is a a term that gets invented by and used in the way we know it by the Christians. As he'd been warned he might, um, you might black out if you try to do this. And when he came to, he found himself lying in a rather uncomfortable heap with his head in a mushroom patch. Now, I've seen mushroom patches before. By the time this was published, everybody, I mean, 1956, people knew about magical mushrooms, right? Peyote Mm -hmm. was well known at that time. But it's not just peyote. The mushrooms and the trees around him weren't shrinking anymore. Mm -hmm. So John knew he'd stopped. Alice in Wonderland begins with Alice falling down and falling and falling and falling And then she stopped. Now she knows she's in Wonderland. And she gets out. And how does she manage to get out? Um, She finds a a drink me and an eat me. Mm -hmm. And the things get her bigger and smaller. 
when she finally means the caterpillar, he's on a mushroom. And if she eats from one side, she gets bigger, and the other side, she gets smaller. This reference to mushrooms, which, by the way, I don't think typically grow in patches. Um, I mean, I've never heard that term applied to mushrooms. Um, I hear mushroom rings. Mm-hmm. I see, right, right. But he's concocting something which puts him in the world of Alice in Wonderland or a, an analog to it. And both of the Alice books, which are 1865 and 1872, so they're, you know, clearly something that would have been quite available to our author here. Uh, Both the Alice books end with Alice throwing off the fantasy and coming back into our world. So in a way, I think that there is a very sad undercurrent here that the comedy is one that suggests that the escape of fantasy is at best only sustainable while one is engaged with the work of art itself. Mm. Mm -hmm. He slept somehow, and with the closing of his conscious mind, the one that wanted to meet a dinosaur in fatal combat, he was looking for a fantasy to end it all. The conventional, read conformist, the conventional subconscious, which also sought suicide. Even underneath it all, he just couldn't stand to be what the world wanted him to be. But in a more familiar way, shifted him out of reverse. When he awoke, he was back in 1956 in Philadelphia. Irrevocably, John Arthur Ben knew. Well, of course he knew it was irrevocable because there was no machine. It was his strongest attempt, maybe fueled by magical mushrooms, to create a fantasy that would allow him to end his life and be done. But he couldn't. Mm -hmm. So in Philadelphia, the land of Ben Franklin, Mm -hmm. right, a great scientist, great rationalist, John Arthur Ben couldn't live. So he went home and hanged himself in a closet. Uh, ben Franklin, also a uh, uh, great humorist. Um, Indeed. And I think um, there's there's a lot of humor in this, what it should be a depressing story, given it, it's about a guy who wants to kill himself. Um, it is right at the beginning, the doom intended man. I, I noticed um, a lot of allusions, and uh, I noticed the mushrooms... And at, at the first time I read it, I, I think I thought, oh, he's he's gone so far back that he's he's in the land of giant mushrooms, like um, there's a as in the lost land. As yeah, in, uh, there's yeah. a there's a period of time in which uh, I mean the lost world. Excuse me. There's the lost uh, world, but there's a there's also like a a period of time in Europe where mushrooms uh, in you know the Black Forest were big fossilized mushrooms they found right. So uh, I was, oh, but that's actually not what's happening there. And and I also noticed the word patch, and I agree, they are not, they're fairy rings. And I wrote a little note, fairyland, like it's he's in fairyland. But if he's going back and back in time, and the last thing before he falls asleep, when he leaves the Christian, the pre-Christian era, um, he's going back and back. He should be in the land of the dinosaurs, right, eventually. But no. The animal that attacks him is a boar, which is not an animal you would find in the land of the dinosaurs. 
Um, so I started noticing um, there are kind of um, allusions, I think, other than to specific uh, historical figures, Ben Jonson and such. The King Arthur is a good example of a semi-historical figure. Um, uh, the first time I noticed is um, on the first page. It says... Uh, John, I, I also note this is very interesting. Whenever his name is mentioned, it's always the full name, John Arthur Ben. He isn't just—I don't think he's just trying to f- fill fill pages, right? <laughs> uh, I think this is uh, important to the story somehow. It's like um, a reckoning, you know. It's like when your your parents are mad at you, they use your full full name, middle name, last name, right? <laughs> um, he's he's out of the gay nineties going backwards, and he wonders how it would be to be a pilot on a riverboat on the Mississippi. That is uh, bringing to mind a very specific person, Mark Twain, um, Mm -hmm. to me. And later on, that's confirmed, I think. Um, He goes uh, sideways, or how does he put it, laterally, um, to England and King Arthur. Um, King Arthur... And Mark Twain go together in a story that is uh, a great time travel novel. Yes, a great one called Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court. And at the very beginning of that novel, after he gets conked on the head while visiting a castle, uh, the main stand-in for Mark Twain that is, uh, gets conked on the head uh, while visiting a castle in England. Um, he wakes up uh, in a field in England. And uh, he sees a knight charging at him with a lance. Um, and he runs up a tree and hides it. <laughs> hides in the tree above. Why the knight attacks this Mark Twain stand-in figure is never explained in the story. It's just an amazing start to the story. And here we have that happen, but with a, a, a boar. And I, I think, again, the sounds of the words are important. Um, the... The briar patch is what I thought of when I third, saw, thought of that um, mushroom patch. And we mm. have covered a, a story with a briar patch on this that uh, on this podcast that um, involves a, a rabbit. <laughs> Don't um, throw me in that briar patch. That's right. Um, and that's all about sort of lying. Uh, uh, the, um, the mushrooms causing uh, the shrinking... And also strange behavior is another one we've covered. Uh, there's a Purple Pilius story, or a story called The Purple Pilius by H.G. Wells, which is about a, a man who is dissatisfied with his life and can't get the things that he wants. Um, he goes for a walk, fills his hat with mushrooms, and when he comes back, uh, radically changes his life, having consumed the mushrooms and perhaps knowing that they would have a radical altered states on him um, improves his life. Uh, so there's that. And then I note that it, the story talks, uh, the intro, uh, editorial introduction, he says he, he forgot the most important rule of time travel, don't fall asleep. That sort of alluded to uh, probably uh, in the story by someone giving Arthur Ben advice. But uh, he actually blacks out and then he falls asleep so he blacks out wakes up in this uh land that is not uh 
Dinosaurville, right? It's <laughs> just some fairyland of his own imagination, really. And then when he he goes to sleep, he wakes up in Philadelphia in 1956. And he goes into... And notice he's not in his home. He's not like in in his bed. He went home and hanged himself in a closet. So it's like it it has a lot going on but like every every symbolic thing that happens like he he sits he sits on a fallen law, tree a fallen tree takes out a wrap sandwich a small vacuum bottle of coffee out of his coffee out of his pocket when he finishes the meal he walked to a stream nearby rinsed the bottle tossed the wax paper onto the water to be carried away uh and pocketed the vacuum bottle the vacuum bottle is another closet sort of like device, right? Um, he's, he's making things neat. But the paper, the waxed paper, why is that in this story? It's almost like that that's a suicide note. Because throwing it into the river, that doesn't, or a stream doesn't really make a lot of sense. It, it, well, unless I ha- it's I have symbolic. Seen these things. Yeah. Well, I do think it's symbolic, but I, I it is. I mean, uh, wax paper is a paper on which you cannot write. Right. Um, so it's a failed suicide note. Uh, he's not getting to check out the way he wants to check out. There are, and I, I one that comes to my mind is the Englischer Garten in uh, Munich. There are public parks where there are streams flowing through. I grew Mm. up near Prospect Park in Brooklyn. Uh, Mostly it's a lake, but there's a stream feeding the lake. Um, People go to the park to have lunch. They sit down on a wooden bench, which looks an awful lot like a log that's fallen over. Mm -hmm. They take out their wrapped sandwich and their thermos of coffee, which they've had with them since they went to work in the morning. Mm Mm-hmm. They finally get away from their desk doing their terrible, boring jobs. And then, if you don't really care about the future, you might sully things by throwing the, the piece of paper on that, on that stream. Mm-hmm. The reason I say that it's a boring job mm-hmm. is because I think we get the motivation right there in the third sentence of the last big paragraph. To be killed by a boar would be ignominious. Not a B-O-A-R, a B-O-O-R. This fellow lives in a world of conformity. Everyone is boring. And for them to be able to kill him would be something that one would not even want to give a name. Mm. He would rather kill himself. He'd like to do it in a glorious adventure and give himself up to a dinosaur. But if he can't get himself killed in any good way, he'll just go back into his closet and hang himself. Yeah. And, and that's what he did. Uh, uh, I, in other words, I'm saying, sure, it can be symbolic. It can be a, a suicide note that can't be written. It can be a sign of his not caring about the future since streams show the passage of time. But it's also, I think an image between the wrapped sandwich and the coffee of somebody who has brought lunch with him to work. And he's now gone off, you know, he's had this with him all day. At lunchtime, he goes and sits in the park. 
Yeah. And, and he this is where reads, he has the fantasy. He reads science fiction, right? That's his escape. <laughs> and what stories exactly. does he read? Well, he reads Mark Twain's Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court. And he reads A Sound of Thunder by Ray Bradbury. And he says, that's what I would like. I would like to go back in time and fight a dinosaur. Or rather, I'd like to have a dinosaur eat me. Because that would that would be significant. That would be important. That would allow me to live up to any of my names. Ben Johnson, King Arthur. Right. It's, it's if a I'm right, tragedy. And, <clears throat> if I'm right, it is. If I'm right in saying this as someone who is closeted, and I'm not saying necessarily um, closeted because of his sexuality, but someone who is, in fact afraid to to meet the world just is unwilling to conform and knows that conformity is the only way one can survive um, this story is really archetypal for so many science fiction stories particularly um, in the so-called golden age when as many critics have pointed out the the uh, modal story is a power fantasy for a an adolescent male, a yeah, golden um, age is thirteen, right? It, it, well, twelve is how I heard it. Yeah. But yes, um, uh, absolutely. And, but in those power fantasies, in Heinlein, for example, the the ordinary guy turns out to be the necessary hero. Um, Superman is revealed when he takes off his conforming suit as Clark Kent. Mm. All right. This is the exact opposite. This is a guy who is seeking a fantasy, not so that he can have power in the world, but so that he can at least regain power in his own agency. Mm. He already knows he can't do anything in the world. Can he at least kill himself in a way that stands out? And he can't. Nope. He knows it. What so you, uh, he goes He goes back and hangs himself still in the closet. He's not even willing to rub the rest of the world's face in his suicide. Nope. And it seems to me, therefore, that this story is very, very important because it suggests that while power fantasy might be the modal story in science fiction, the need, the desperate need for those power fantasies can, in fact, sometimes reflect a very deep dis-ease. And this magazine is allowing its readers to see that. There's an editor who allowed this story in. Now, maybe the editor read it too quickly and just thought, interesting time travel story, but it's short enough to read more than once. Mm -hmm. And I think on rereading, it's clear the 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 humor of a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court and the the silly logic games of Alice in Wonderland, um, all of those things end with being thrown back into the world. Mm-hmm. And Henry Morgan never does manage to regain his his love, Sandy. You know, back in Twain's novel, they're irrevocably separated, mm-hmm. and little Alice can't dominate the world. She's going to have to grow up. And John Arthur Ben irrevocably is not going to be able to survive unless he conforms. 
And he makes a choice between those two things. And the editor allowed it into this into the book. So you have read whole issues of these things. I'm asking you, Jesse, do you think that the editor got what we're talking about, even unconsciously? Do you think that the readers thought that this was a mistaken publication or a new way of looking at what they had most typically been reading? What do you think the story meant? It's it's real tricky because uh, I think like I, I talk with a lot of people who read uh, the stories that we do, <laughs> um, and they they know that the stories are good, but they don't know why. So that's what I'm always interested in. when I read a story and I say this is a good story. Why is it a good story? What makes it a good story? Not just that I like it. That's not what makes it good. What makes it have have a power to do something to me. And so one the the, the bad answer to your question, Eric, is um, he needed to fill pages, the editor did. Larry T. Shaw, editor of Infinity Science Fiction, needed to fill pages because he has a magazine to publish. And uh, this guy, uh, Richard Wilson, well, he just happened to submit two stories, and both of them are good, and they fill my pages. The problem with doing that is you go out of business if you if you just buy everything, Right. And so he's he's picked two good stories, one Course of Empire, which we've already covered, and he's not allowed in the sense that readers will object, he thinks, possibly, of filling whole issue with only Richard Wilson stories. There are whole issues of, of some magazines that are all, every story is written by Robert Silverberg under a pseudonym. Here there's only two. <laughs> one by Richard Wilson, one by Edward Halibut. They're back to back in the story. They're both relatively short, but they're both of quality and different kinds of quality. This story is a, a tragedy and a comedy. The other is a tragedy and a comedy, but in a different measure, in different measure. And one of the things you can do when you're experimenting a little bit and you have to distinguish between two people who are actually one person is give that person a pseudonym. Here we have Edward Halibut. And I note that a halibut is also a flounder. And that's what our character is doing. He, <laughs> he wants to kill himself, but he doesn't want to kill himself. He wants to have a fantasy life that would be have some meaning, but he can't do that. And I, I think about the the political... Uh, references in here, the uh, references to John Paul Jones, the American Revolution, uh, King Arthur, he leaves England after uh, the United States is, becomes a country, he goes to the Druids, right? He's trying to make some sort of connection, this name, John Arthur Ben, a very English name, he's trying to make some mm -hmm. sort of connection to his ancestors. He doesn't go forward in time. And when he returns back to Philadelphia in 1956, this is the founding city, in many senses, of the United States, he does not like what he sees. So it is a tragedy, in a, in a greater sense than it is a comedy, but it's, it's, a, it's, it's something for a readership that could only be in infinity science fiction people who really appreciate why science fiction is fun and interesting he doesn't even attempt to explain how time travel happens here 
it is a fantasy. And the readers know that. But it has some sort of symbolic power. And it does have value to them, even if it's not the solution that they're all looking for. Do you happen to know how Richard Wilson, Edward Halibut, died? I don't. I, I don't have his uh, – he, he looked quite a long life. He started uh, – No, he didn't. He died at 67. Ah, that's a long life, Eric. I'm, I'm only 50. <laughs> oh, to me – I'm looking back on 67. It doesn't seem to me a long life. But well, the reason I ask is this. Richard Wilson, um, from what I can glean, um, had only a brief marriage. Otherwise, he lived basically alone. He grew up on Long Island. um, And 1956 is the not only the era of conformity. It is this the post-World War II boom where the first Levittown, the land of conformity, was built in the former potato fields of Long Island. He wound up ultimately as working for in public relations for Syracuse University, in, in other words, upstate New York. Um, it looks to me like he had a life trying to make things conform. And it looks like he didn't ever hit it off. I don't know much more than that, but it certainly sounds like this particular story could be a cri de coeur, uh, a cry from his own heart. Mm. Yes, he has more than one story in this issue of the magazine, because I think this fellow trying to reach out to the public, that's his job. Um He could never express what he really wanted to be or say, which is why it always felt to him that there was always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.